Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Sermon Series. สวัสดีค่ะยินดีต้อนรับสู่บทเทศนาของบท Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. And here's this week's sermon. We hope you enjoy it too. Today we continue our series on the life of of Moses, and I'm reading from Numbers chapter 20. The first 13 verses from that chapter. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, "If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord, why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here?" Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, "Take the staff, you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together, speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water." You will bring water out of the rock for the community, so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, "Listen, you rebels! Must we bring you water out of this rock?" Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, "Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them." These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where He was proved holy among them. As we look at the life of Moses, it's important to take lessons both ways, both his virtues and his faults. And in this chapter, we see one fault that fo- that followed Moses all of his life. Moses had a temper problem. He killed an Egyptian slave master for abusing a fellow Hebrew at the age of 40, and he spent the next 40 years in the desert as a result. In a moment of rage, he took vengeance into his own hands. And then it says, after the ninth plague, it says Moses left Pharaoh's chamber in a fury. Nearly out of control, despite the fact that God told Moses, and after the eight plagues, he had everything in control. And then there was the incident of the golden calf. Moses was so angry when he came down from Sinai and saw they had built an idol, he smashed something he shouldn't have smashed: two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on them, made and given to Israel by God from Sinai. Then Moses, he was really mad. He set fire to the calf. He melted it down. He ground it into powder. He put it in Israel's water and made all the Israelites drink the water. That is a mad Moses. You might not have noticed, but the second time around, when the, God remade the, the the Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone, God made Moses carve out the second set of tablets. Then God wrote on them, but it, in His own way, God was saying, "You broke my tablets the first time. You get to make them this time." This was God's way of chastising Moses again, subtly about his temper. 
And now we see Moses and Israel at Kadesh in the desert of Zin. For 40 years, Moses has listened to the whining, the complaining, the criticizing. He had, during that 40 years, actually had to endure a revolt against him by some of these very same people. And it is obvious he has, after 40 years, he's had enough. This time, it's about water again. Same complaints. Why didn't God let us die in Egypt? Why didn't God kill us sooner? Why did God bring us to this God-forsaken place? There's no water, wah, wah, wah. And Moses did what he had learned to do for 40 years. He took all these needs and complaints to the Lord. And God said, take your staff and your brother Aaron, call everybody together, and speak to a particular rock I point out. And water will come out of that rock, enough for everybody and their varmints. So Moses does what he's told until he gets to that rock. When he gets there, it is an understatement to say he was not in a good mood. He is angry. And he says, listen, you rebels. Rebel is about the nicest way you could interpret the Hebrew word he used for them. It was really more, listen, you rabble. Listen, you lowlifes. Listen, you poor excuses for a human being. It was an insult. Must we bring you water from this rock? Did you notice that Moses didn't say, listen, people of God, a gracious God is going to bring water out of the rock. He said, shall we, Aaron and I, bring water out of this rock? I ask you, when did Moses and Aaron learn how to bring water out of a rock? And when Moses disobeyed God, and then Moses disobeyed God in his anger. Instead of speaking, he struck the rock twice and water poured out. Moses' temper caused Moses to take matters into his hand, own hands one more time. Anger made him lose perspective once again. You see, Israel and its water needs were God's problem, not Moses' problem. Moses forgot that. If water came out of the rock, it was up to God, not Moses and Aaron. In moments of intense anger or rage, have you noticed that we can forget everything that's important to us? Who we are, who we love, what we value, the possible harm we can cause, the consequences that could last a lifetime. We hit twice when we should obey. The Bible combines the terms anger and fire 15 times, fire being a metaphor for anger. And fire can be good if it's used properly, like in a fireplace. But out of control, fire can burn down the house. The Bible keeps saying again and again, don't let your anger get, down, get out of control and burn down the house. Anger can be used as a catalyst to call us to justice and righteousness and action and prayer. Or it can lead us to do terrible, sinful things. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 4, Be angry and sin not. Max Licato said that one Christmas, he was out and a car swerved in front of him, did a U-turn in front of him, almost took off the front of his car. Locato said, I have to confess, I honked at him, and my honk was not polite. So, you know, when they, you know, 
And he said, a long, long arm came out of the passenger side window and gave me a backhanded one-finger wave. You know that one. And it really ticked off Lakato. He said, thanks to a traffic light, I was soon side by side with the perpetrator. He had his window down. I lowered mine. He looked at me. And Lakato said, you need to watch that wave, son. He said, Lucado said, in an ideal world, he, this guy would have apologized, I would have wished him Merry Christmas, and I wouldn't be telling you this story. But the world is not ideal. When I told him to watch that wave, he smirked and demanded, make me. Make me, Lucado said. When was the last time I heard someone say, make me? Middle school, high school, locker room, make me? That's what teens say. Of course, he was a teen. He didn't have a whisker on him. He was a skinny, floppy-haired, testosterone-laden adolescent who was feeling his oats riding shotgun in his buddy's muscle car. And as for me, he said, I am a 60-year-old pastor who writes Christian books and speaks at conferences and feels a call to make the world a better, more loving place. He said, I should have shut my window, but I didn't. I looked down at him literally and metaphorically, and I said with my own version of a smirk, what did you say? Make me, he repeated. The saints in heaven were saying, drive away, Lucado. <laughs> Common sense was urging, drive away, Lucado. The better angels of the universe were prompting, drive away, Lucado. I did not listen. The dare of that punk activated the punk inside of me. The punk I hadn't seen in decades. I snarled, okay, where do you want to go so I can make you? His eyes widened to the size of hamburger patties. He couldn't believe an old man was saying that. I couldn't believe I said that. When he realized I was serious, well, he said, let's settle this at the shopping mall. Are you kidding, Lucado said? There are too many people in the shopping mall. Follow me. Of course, if I was Max Lucado, I wouldn't, with all the smartphones, and I wouldn't uh, duke it out with anybody in a mall taking my video. Anyway, all of a sudden, Lucado said I was the expert on where to duke it out. The light turned and I accelerated. In my side view mirror, I could see that the two boys were engaged in heated exchange. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? He looks pretty cranky. Well, he might have a weapon or something. By the time I reached the next stoplight, they were nowhere to be seen. Boy, was I relieved. <laughs> I drove the rest of the way to my in-law's house asking myself, did you really just dare a kid to a fight? Are you crazy? He said, I'd like to blame my behavior on my state of mind, the stress of the traffic, the driver who nearly hit my car, or the passenger who pushed my buttons. But he said, I can only blame my bizarre behavior on one thing, the punk inside of me. For a few minutes at a stoplight near a shopping mall, I forgot who I was. And I forgot who that teenager was. In that heated moment, he wasn't someone's son or brother. He wasn't a creation of God. He wasn't a miracle. He wasn't fearfully and wonderfully made. He was a jerk. And I let him bring out the jerk in me. 
He said, the Bible has a name for this punkish tendency. It's called sin. He said, I was reminded that day, I still have a sin nature inside of me. That's why the Bible says, be angry and sin not. Don't let the punk there bring out the punk here. If we don't handle our anger, it will handle us. As it says in Proverbs 14, 7, a quick-tempered person does stupid, out-of-control things. They are a fool. Well, duh. Obviously, this was reflecting on road rage before there was road rage. In fact, Paul says that if we let our anger burn long enough, we give the devil a foothold. A niche in our hearts where Satan can live and operate. A place where the devil can use our anger to warp us, make us act in ways that harm ourselves and others, actually quench the spirit who lives in us. And it cost Moses because God says to Moses, you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Lord because you had a hissy fit in all of Israel, because you embarrassed me and yourself. Because you took matters into your own hands and disobeyed me in your anger, you will not take this community into the land I gave them. You don't get to go into the promised land. Moses prayed, it says in Deuteronomy, three times for God to change his mind. And finally, on the third time, God said no with a finality that said, do not ask again. Some of you may be saying, come on. Moses, he had every right to be angry. And he, all he did was whack a rock twice. What's the big deal? The big deal is that disobedience is always a big deal. Especially in front of two million Israelites from a leader who has seen and been given what Moses saw and was given. The Lord had worked for a lifetime on Moses' anger. And Moses simply never grew beyond it. Moses was forgiven. But I think the Lord was saying, in essence, essence, Moses, you and your temper, temper will not go into the promised land. A raging temper is bad enough up till now, but I will not take you and your out of control temper into a land full of giants and fortified cities and enemy armies. I can't afford for you to make rash decisions under those conditions. It could be disastrous. Angry disobedience at a rock is one thing. Out of control anger in the middle of a war or a battle is another thing. God can always forgive sin. But forgiveness does not erase the consequences of a lot of our sins. A forgiven murderer saved in prison still doesn't get to walk free. A repeat adulterer may be forgiven, but that doesn't mean the marriage can be saved. A child abuser may be forgiven, but that doesn't mean they're entrusted ever again with a child. Forgiveness of sin does not erase all the consequences of sin. It didn't for Moses. It didn't for David. It won't for us all the time. The real question is, how do we handle anger so that our anger doesn't handle us? The Bible tells us the first principle of anger management is don't feed the beast. Don't keep rehashing things over and over, throwing fire, gasoline on the fire. 
Don't let, it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, handle your anger as quickly as you can because I, here's one of the tricks of anger. A lot of us think it's okay to hold on to anger if it's for a just cause. But the Bible doesn't treat it that way. It's, again, you have to move on every kind of anger quickly. Even if it's for a right cause, it's like acid in a container and it's eating through that container. Get control of your thinking and take a step back. Seven times the Bible says God is slow to anger. Try emulating Him. Count to ten. Get under control. It's your choice. And please don't tell me you can't control it when you get mad. Have you ever been in one of those situations, and I have, where you are yelling at your kid or your spouse, and the phone rings right in the middle of a shout? And, you pick, and you're going, Rah, hi, yeah, things are going great, how about you? Oh, that's wonderful, praise the Lord, great hearing from you, blessings, bye. Now, where was I? I'm going to make you sorry you were born. Don't tell me you can't control yourself. And if you need a little help, just pretend Mary Lou Rugg and Anna Peachy are in the room watching you. That ought to add to your sanctification. Or try Jesus. Oh, that's a wild eye. Pretend Jesus is in the room. Because he is. Second, explore this. If you're really, really, really angry... Ask yourself, why am I so angry? What buttons just got pushed? What scabs got picked at? What old wounds are bleeding? Pray for God's perspective and wisdom. And if need be, talk to a trusted friend or counselor. Ask, am I overreacting? Or do I need to set boundaries here? What's the Christian response to this situation? What do I need from the Lord to face this situation in a new way? And third... See your anger as a potential call to action or change. Do I need to confront somebody in love? Or write a senator? Or march? As I said before, our anger can be a catalyst to act for justice and righteousness. Do you think Muslims are being unfairly singled out in this nation right now? I have a suggestion. Don't just get mad and stay mad. Do something about it. Befriend a Muslim. By the way, in our ESL class, our English is a second language class on Wednesday night, we have numbers of Muslims that who are coming to our ESL class, and they are learning English, and friendships are forming out of that class. This Muslim family that has started to attend our uh, Wednesday night ESL class, there are approximately 50 in this family. 50! And friendships are being made. In fact, in the last couple of weeks, the head of this family, John Hawbecker, was there. He was in the first service. In front of the family, he grabbed John Hawbecker and in front of the family kissed him on the cheek and said, this man is our father, this man is our brother. God is doing something. Something's going to happen there. If you want to pray for something, pray for God to break into the lives of our Muslim friends on Wednesday night. A mosque in Steelton, by the way. 
Yeah, praise the Lord for that, yeah. By the way, a mosque in Stilton felt threatened a few weeks back when two of its members had knives held to their throats and were told, get out of America. The next Saturday, the church was ringed with Christians during the worship service. As a public witness to the community that we love these folks, and as a witness to the folks inside the, the mosque, we are your friends. Friendships came out of that day. And some of the people that were in that ring around the, that church are in the sanctuary this morning. And I am proud of you. Do you find the attitudes towards undocumented immigrants angering? Especially as Christians who Jesus said we were to welcome the aliens and strangers in our land. This church, by the way, has ministered before and quite possibly will again to undocumented immigrants, especially Mexicans. I forget how long ago it was, mussers, but we remember when we had the house church of undocumented Mexicans? It was Chuck and Kara and Noel Soto. Do you remember? Some of you remember Noel and Nancy Payne and me. And for weeks, every Sunday night, we got together with 15 or 20 of these wonderful people. And we worshiped together. We prayed together. We studied the scriptures together. We ate together. We helped in every way we could, including trying to help them get their papers and become legal. We did not rat them out, by the way. We did not turn them into the law. You know why? Because they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the kingdom of God trumped the kingdom of America. It did. And by the way, if that, if that ever, God leads us that way again, I can't speak for the church. That will have to be a church decision. But I'm going to do it again. Because I would rather stand before an earthly judge and be judged for helping a refugee than stand before a heavenly judge and be judged for not helping a refugee. And on it goes. If you are angry, pray. And just maybe God will ask you to make a difference. Let your anger jumpstart you to take action or a stand. But I remind you again, let your anger be something that starts you. Do not let your anger be the place where you live. Even for right causes, you cannot live in a burning house. Right now, I am concerned about the amount of anger still in this nation and among Christians in this nation after this election. There are Christians talking to other Christians in very unchristian ways. I talked to a young woman after church this morning. She was devastated because in social media, she had said something and dared to disagree with some of her friends on the opposite side, and they eviscerated her. And she said, I thought they were my brothers and sisters in Christ. I thought they loved me. I cannot believe that over politics, all that got thrown out the window. And for myself, there are things, I, I experienced things this election I have never experienced before, ever. I am 63 and a half. I actually had a person for Trump and a person for Hillary came up to me at different times. And both of them said 
to me in effect, if you vote for Trump, you're not a good Christian. Or the other one said, if you vote for Hillary, you're not a good Christian. I have never had someone question my heart and my allegiance to Jesus Christ over an election. I had to beat the pulp out of both of them to show how much I love Jesus. I love him. But, you know, by, no, I, I, I didn't beat him up. I just went on social media and crucified him. Anyway, by the way, have you noticed that the ratings for Jerry Springer are going down? That's because the real action's in Facebook, brothers and sisters. That, you want to see crazy zoo-like behavior, get on Facebook. At least that's what I'm told. Some of you going, you've never been on Facebook in your life. And you're right, but I hear things. Right now, you know, Christina, Christina Cleveland is a young African-American writer from California who's written a book entitled Disunity in Christ. Uncovering the hidden, hidden faces, forces that keep us apart. And she talked about that she in her church, she said, there was one guy in my church named Ben that drove me absolutely nuts. He was the most offensive person I knew. He said, she said, everything about him bugged me, from his inflexible and preachy conservatism, both in politics and, 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 and religion, to his career as an engineer working for the military-industrial complex, to his dorky Hawaiian print button-down shirts, which were the greatest offense of all. And she said, I was praying, lamenting that Ben was a part of my life. And suddenly the Spirit spoke to her, and she was confronted with the idea that Ben was going to be in heaven with me for all eternity. I would never, ever be rid of him. And suddenly the idea of frolicking on the streets of gold seemed less enticing. That's okay. She said, I reassured myself, heaven's going to be a big, big place. I don't have to run into Ben up there. She said, when I first began walking with Christ, she said, I felt in an immediate and authentic connection with every Christian that crossed my path. Orthodox, Catholic, charismatic, evangelical, didn't matter. We were family. But she said, as I continued to grow, she said, I got a whole lot pickier. She said, I chose to build a community with people with whom I could pretty much agree on everything. I invested lots of time and energy in fostering relationships with people who had similar ethnic backgrounds, were about my age, possessed similar educational degrees, professed similar theology, worshiped like me, voted like me, were fluent in the language of my postmodern, intellectual, wonderlustful, diverse culture. She said, I sincerely thought I was doing a fabulous job because, hey, I was living in community, and isn't that what good Christians are supposed to do? She said, I began to judge other Christians by labels and churches they went to. And she said, the way I saw it, there were two types of Christians, the right kind of Christian and the wrong kind of Christian. It was that simple, she said. Wrong Christian for her was not a thinker. He hadn't read a book in the last two years. He voted based on very simplistic issues. Wrong Christian lacked cross-cultural sensitivity and all that other stuff. That was wrong Christian. But again, the Spirit was working with her about her and her judgmental attitude. And she began to see that Jesus was bigger than her right Christian, wrong Christian categories. It was really brought home to her one summer 
when Santa Barbara was subjected to a series of devastating fires. She said, we are talking about fires of biblical proportions. The whole city was covered in smoke and soot for most of the month of July. She said, and the wildfires threatened the homes of a number of people in our church. She said, most of us were running from the fires, but not Ben. Ben was headed straight for the homes that were in danger. Checking on the people of the church, offering to do anything to help them, giving them rides, helping them protect their homes, letting them stay at his house. He, she said he did this in spite of the fact that many of the people to whom he was offering help held from different ethnic backgrounds, voted for different candidates, held opposing eschatological views on how the world was going to end. He was pre-millennial for Pete's sakes, and he dressed in those Hawaiian shirts. She said, during that summer, Ben showed me what it looks like to lessen the differences on these other fronts in order to love each other in sacrificial ways. As a member of the family of God, Ben demonstrated the character of Jesus to me that I wasn't demonstrating. And she said, to her utter shock and belief, in terms of my spiritual growth, Ben is essential to me. And I would never have recognized this if I had forever cast him as wrong Christian. The revelation about Ben makes me wonder if our understanding of Jesus is limited by our inability to see him represented in the, in the diversity of the body of Christ. I wonder how much Christ's heart is broken when we denigrate followers of Christ who differ from us. I shudder at the thought. And she says this, I love this. Real discipleship is cross-cultural. It is cross-cultural. When we meet Jesus around people who are just like us and they continue to follow Jesus, then continue to follow Jesus with people who are just like us, we stifle our growth in Christ and open ourselves up to a world of division. However, when we're rubbing elbows in Christian fellowship with people who are different from us, we learn from each other and grow more like Christ, like iron sharpens iron. And she says this, it's not just ethnic differences. It's not just educational and socioeconomic differences. She said, we need to rub elbows with people who have different political differences and who are in the right Christian, wrong Christian kind of things. That's truly cross-cultural. That's how we grow. Now, please hear me on this. Christina is not saying, let's all keep quiet about our differences and sing kumbaya together. She was saying quite the opposite. She was saying real Christianity is when we bring our differences into the same room and start a dialogue that grows us all. It is not backing down from the truth, but speaking the truth and love to each other that demonstrates our oneness in Christ and grows us beyond each of our narrow vision of reality. I need people different from me to grow into the image of Jesus. And that includes, God help me, politics. Ben showed Christina something she needed. And she did the same for Ben. Iron sharpens iron. You see, in the body of Christ, disagreement is not the problem. The lack of love is the problem. Jesus said, love your enemies. And that includes political ones. Especially if they are your brother or sister in Christ. I grew up in the 60s. And I saw two great movements for peace and justice. One was the Civil Rights Movement. Of course, it was led by Martin Luther King. It was a movement based entirely on the teachings of Jesus. In that movement, hatred for white people, even white racists who were oppressing them, was not allowed. 
There would be no demonizing of anyone. The goal was to make people face the truth about themselves. And so, what they did was they behaved in such a way as to awaken people's consciences to the hatred and violence in their own souls. The goal was not to dismiss or attack anyone. And by the way, if you watched, there were plenty of race riots in the 60s. But if you ever, let me ask you, if you watch a, a march led by Martin Luther King, did you ever see anyone in that march scream epithets at anybody? Or throw a brick at anybody? Or riot? Or beat someone up? Or hurl things at police? Or blow up a building? The civil rights movement was a movement for justice. It was fueled by love, and it was fueled by truth, and it was fueled by spiritual power. And they used their bodies as living sacrifices for their cause. But they absolutely refused to hate anybody. And then I saw the peace movement against the Vietnam War. I too was against that war. I felt it was based on lies of politicians, especially LBJ. Plus, I'm a pacifist. I don't support, support war. I love soldiers. I hate war. And this movement, although thousands of Christians supported it and were part of it, a lot of uh, Christians, including myself, didn't like what happened in the name of peace, including Martin Luther King. Because this movement was primarily a secular movement fueled by anger at the establishment. Remember? Bring down the man! And in the name of peace in this movement, I saw bricks thrown through windows. I saw violent riots. I saw fringe elements blowing up buildings. I saw objects hurled at police. I saw soldiers spat on. I saw rage and anger all over the place in the name of love and peace. Isn't that something? And I learned a lesson. How we fight for peace and justice, how we do that, is every bit as important as justice itself. How we fight for a cause is as important as the cause. What's the old adage? Be careful lest in fighting a monster, you become a monster. Let me say this as directly as I can. This is where uh, I'd like a car with a motor started running, okay? <laughs> no Christian gets to hate Donald Trump. No Christian gets to hate Hillary Clinton. No Christian gets to hate their supporters. We, do, do, do you understand that? That is what the Bible teaches. Love your enemies. Pray for them that persecute you. And by the way, we're to pray for the president, even if we disagree with him and work for causes opposite of him. You know why we're supposed to pray for our leaders? By the way, when Paul asked the early Christians to pray for the Caesars, you know why he asked them to do that? It wasn't because they shared the same political platform. Part of the platform was persecuting Christians. It was because he said, pray that things may go well for you, that you can live in peace, pray for peace to spread in the government to do its proper function. And you know what I really think he had wanted, why he wanted them to pray for the Caesars? I think he wanted them to pray for the Caesars to keep hatred out of their own souls. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the kingdom is to be in the midst of our enemies. And he who will not suffer this idea does not want to be a part of the kingdom of Christ. 
He wants to be among friends, to, among the roses and the lilies, not with bad people. Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you are doing, would any of us have ever been saved? By the way, somebody reminded me that Dietrich Bonhoeffer tried to kill Hitler. Well, he backslid, but oh, he'll be in heaven too. Love your enemies. By the way, this is Jesus' most famous, famous teaching. It is Jesus' most original teaching. And it is the most violated teaching he ever taught, primarily by Christians. Moses let his anger lead to disobedience. May we not suffer from the same problem. May we obey Jesus even in this area. May the kingdom of God be bigger than America, bigger than political parties, and bigger than this election. Let us live how Jesus taught us to live in His kingdom instead of getting swallowed up in the world's kingdom. I got news for you. The world's crazy and there's times it's been crazier. We are part of another kingdom. Be angry and sin not. Be angry and judge not your brothers and sisters for having different political views or not being who you think they ought to be. Whack not the rocks. Whack not the rocks. Amen? I'd like Shauna to come forward. I'd like the intercessors to come forward. And if you disagree with this sermon, uh, I've hired some people. <laughs> I will not engage in violence, but I know some who will. No, 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 no. Let us live like Jesus told us to live. Amen? Would you stand? Let's sing our final song, Intercessors Pray for People as They Come Forward. I chose this last song for the, the bridge, so let my deeds outrun my words. It's in broken praise again, um, but I'm focusing on those words. So let my deeds outrun my words and let my life outweigh my songs. Untainted praise unfading be yours, be yours forevermore. Be yours, be yours forevermore. Unbroken praise be yours, God, forever. All my praise be
life, let it be your throne. Lord, take our lives, let them be your throne, and let them touch our world with love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to prepare for our council meeting. Uh, If you're staying, we um, are going to be setting up tables in the back here uh, for the lunch line and if you're um, if you're not staying you can uh, chat with one another but maybe come over more to this side of the room to do so give us a couple minutes to uh, set up the line and then we'd like the children and the children's workers to go through first so that they can um, get to where they where they need to be We'll start the line from the left side closest to the wall and go toward the center of the room. If you could be quiet for just a minute while I give the rest of the instructions. Woody's going to come after you. Uh, There are several choices for sandwiches. There'll be ham, there'll be turkey, there'll be sweet bologna. In addition, we have some just plain rolls. If you'd like to just make a cheese sandwich, you can do that. Then you can pick up lettuce, tomatoes, cheese, condiments, carrots, ranch dressing, chips, cookies, water bottle. Um, And then find a seat somewhere in the sanctuary. You can get a plate or a lunch bag at the front of the line, whichever you prefer. Um, Go down both sides of the tables to make the line go more quickly. And now I'd like to pray for our meal. Lord, we thank you that we get to have uh, lunch together before our meeting and to share with one another. We thank you for the gift of 
uh, being part of this church family. We pray your blessing on our time together, your blessing on our food, your blessing on those who prepared it. Uh, we're grateful, God, for your uh, many gifts to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.